Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. You never know when you might get tackled, but we have family right now meeting out at Stone Canyon and also those who will be joining us online. If you would take a moment, let's welcome them into our service here today. You know, there is one truth that I think we can all agree on today, and it's this. Life is full of surprises. Now, some surprises are good and some are bad, but nevertheless, life is full of surprises. And I came across a video not too long ago of this couple who found out they were pregnant, and they wanted to share the news with her parents. And this news is going to make her parents' grandparents for the very first time, so they wanted to not just tell them, but surprise them. And so they decided to play this game with them, where they had her parents wear headphones with loud blaring music, and they were going to try to read their lips. So the kids were going to say, we're pregnant, or you're going to be a grandpa or grandma, and these soon-to-be grandparents were to try to guess what they were saying. And the grandma, soon-to-be grandma, she caught on right away. She knew what they were saying. But the soon-to-be grandpa, it took him a little longer. This video's pretty funny. Take a look. Ready? Yep. Okay. I'm pregnant. Hyper. I'm pregnant. Hyper. Yes. yes. Keep saying it. Keep you're saying it. You're going to be, yeah, you're Are going you? to be pre grandparent. Keep saying it. You're going to be a grandparent. Short, short. You're going to be a grandparent. Do you want me to what? You are. You are. To. You are. Be, you are mean. You are. You are lovely. Going. You are. You going are going to. To. Be. Beach. You are going to the beach. You are going to be. You a, are going to beach and. Be a. And what? You are going to be a. I'm going to behave. Grandfather. I'm a father. Grandfather. A great father. Grandfather. Grandfather. Yes. I'm going to be a grandfather. Yes. Yes. I'm going to be a grandfather. I'm going to be a grandfather. I'm going to be a grandfather. Yes. Oh, we're going to be a grandfather. I can't believe that. Ben, that works. Are you going to be a I love all the raw emotion in that video. You know, that soon-to-be grandpa, he goes from being confused to realization to surprise and then just overwhelming joy and excitement. And that's what surprises do. I'll never forget when we told my parents we were pregnant with Addie, our second child, our daughter. We just got back from a trip to Disneyland, and so we wanted to surprise them as well. We didn't, we didn't just want to tell them. So we took them out to eat or at a restaurant, and we had all these pictures developed from our Disneyland trip. Now, that should have been a red flag that something was up because we don't ever get pictures developed anymore you know you show people your phone or they see your pictures online but you don't just get pictures developed anymore but we did and we had the stack of photos and we had this one picture made up especially to reveal that we were pregnant and it was a picture of four Mickey hats and I've got it uh, I've got it up on the screen if you're gonna take a look at it and the last hat said coming 2017 so that was supposed to give it away so my parents they're going through these pictures and they get to this picture which has a hat for Allison and me and Alex and then this fourth hat there's just three of us at the time but a fourth hat and my parents they skip right over they keep going I'm like no 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 go back look at that picture again and so they went back and they looked at it and still oh yeah those are nice hats yeah and then they keep going I was like no go back look more carefully and so they look back at the picture again and my dad gets it and my dad's all excited but my mom still doesn't understand what's going on and my dad's like Eleanor look at the fourth hat and so my mom reads it coming 2017 and she goes are you guys going back to Disney next year and we're like 
no mom no and finally she got it and just to see that look of surprise and then excitement on her face it was priceless life is full of surprises and some surprises like the two examples I just share with you are good and they're fun but some surprises not so much anybody ever been caught off guard and it wasn't a good thing anybody ever experienced a bad surprise it was about three years ago or so when I woke up one morning I was really dizzy didn't feel well at all and I knew something wasn't right but I thought it'll pass let me get some coffee or whatever it'll pass and Allison told me you need to go to the doctor and I'm like no I'll be fine I, mean, I could barely walk and so I decided to go to the doctor and my doctor uh, didn't have any appointments that day so I saw another physician in his practice and I met with this doctor and she did some tests on me and she came back and she said you've got extremely high blood pressure and she said, besides that, you're 30 pounds overweight. And she told me a few other things that were going on that I didn't want to hear. And I remember looking at her and saying, really? Really? Like I was just totally surprised. And I said, I didn't see that coming. Because, you know, I was just hitting 30 at that point, And I'd always kind of been in shape and didn't have to worry about my weight or health because I was always active. And, you know, high school and college, that's much different than when you get out of college. And things had changed. And I remember telling her, I didn't see this coming. And she looked at me and she said, well, let me ask about your diet right now. Explain to me what you eat. And I told her I ate a lot of fast food and junk food and all that kind of stuff. And she said, well, do you exercise? And I was like, well, every now and then I walk around the neighborhood. And she said, that doesn't count. And then she said, Are, have there been any lifestyle changes that you've experienced? I said, well, we have a one-year-old right now. And she's like, yeah, that, that'll do it. And then she said, what do you do for an occupation? What's your occupation? I said, well, I'm the preaching minister at a church. I'm a senior minister at a church. And she said, well, that right there will give you high blood pressure. And uh, that's exactly what she said. She wasn't kidding. And she said, you really didn't see it coming with all those signs? You didn't see it coming? I said, honestly, I didn't. Now, I should have. I should have recognized the warning signs, but I didn't, probably because I didn't want to see them. It's what I like to call a blind spot in life, something that you should see coming, something that you should recognize, but for whatever reason, you don't. It's kind of like my parents when they were looking through those Disneyland pictures. The evidence was right in front of them. The truth was right in front of them, but they didn't see it. Why? because they weren't looking for it. Or kind of like the future grandparents in that video. The truth was right in front of that grandpa. They were saying it, but because there was a distraction, you know, loud music in his ears, he didn't see it. Blind spot. Something that we should see, we should recognize, but for whatever reason, we don't. And there are blind spots in life all the time, but this is especially true when it comes to our spiritual lives. On a spiritual level, I think this happens all the time. Certain challenges and obstacles, they creep into our lives that threaten to derail our relationship with Jesus or disrupt the plan He's placed on our lives, and yet for whatever reason, we don't see them coming. Things like negativity or cynicism, self-righteousness, compromise, envy, anger, burnout, and the list goes on and on. I mean, no one ever wakes up one morning and says, you know, I think I want to be a negative, cynical person. No one ever says that. No one wakes up one day and says, you know, I want to let pride overwhelm my life so that everybody thinks that I'm just arrogant and rude. Nobody says that. No one wakes up and says, hey, I want to be selfish and self-centered. No one says, I want envy to control me and jealousy to control me. No one ever says, I hope one day I burn out spiritually never say those things we don't even anticipate those things happening most of the time but all of a sudden one day 
Surprise! That's who we've become. It's a blind spot. We should have seen it coming. The signs were there. But for whatever reason, we didn't. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Different blind spots that we might have in our lives. And again, this is what I mean by a spiritual blind spot. It's a hidden, ignored, or overlooked obstacle that threatens to derail our relationship with Jesus or disrupt the calling he's placed on our lives. And the reason why I want to talk about this as a church is because these blind spots that we all have, they don't have to disrupt our lives. See, the Bible warns in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Peter warns us here, watch out, because Satan, he is prowling around like a roaring lion. Satan is trying to sneak up on us. Satan is trying to get us when we're not looking. Satan is trying to devour us. He is scheming and plotting against us. Now, before we give up hope, though, that warning that Peter gives us, well, it's sandwiched between two other statements. And look at these two other statements. Back up in verse 8, and look what Peter says. Be alert and of sober mind, meaning be clear-minded, be focused. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Then look at this last statement. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Yes, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. Yes, Satan is trying to sneak up on us. Yes, Satan is trying to get us. But we can resist him. When we're alert and aware of his schemes, when we're looking for him, when we're paying attention, we have a clear, sober mind, spiritually speaking, we can be aware of what he's doing and resist him and stand firm in our faith. We just have to be ready for him. When I first started driving, I mentioned a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, that my first car was a 1989 Buick LeSabre. It was gray, and it was a big old box with wheels, but I loved it because it got me where I needed to go. But that gray Buick LeSabre, even though it got me where I wanted to go, it had a bad problem. It had some horrible blind spots. And so my dad bought me these little blind spot mirrors. I'm not sure if you've seen these. I've got a picture of one up on the screen if you don't know what I'm talking about. They go in the corner of your mirrors to help you see more than just what your normal mirrors see. And I remember when he put them on, I thought, well, Dad, that's dorky. But still, I kept them on there. One, because Dad put them on there. I wasn't arguing with him. But two, they really did help. While driving, I was able to see things that I couldn't see without them. And that's what we're doing in this series. In a figurative sense, we're putting up spiritual blind spot mirrors. So we can see some things that maybe we haven't been able to see in the past. We can look for things that we haven't been looking for. So we can recognize some of the hidden, ignored, or overlooked obstacles that may be threatening our spiritual lives. And the first obstacle that we're going to look at that's often in our blind spot is negativity. I think negativity is something we've all struggled with at times. Now, by negativity, what I'm talking about is having a spirit of cynicism, pessimism, and suspicion that contradicts the joy, grace, and hope that Jesus brings to our lives. Now, we all have a bad day here and there. I get that. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is having a chronic spirit of cynicism, pessimism, and suspicion that contradicts the joy, grace, and hope that Jesus brings to our lives. And here's the thing. Negativity, or the spirit of negativity, it can creep into your life before you even realize it. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes to the Christians meeting in Galatia and listen to the question he asked them. Listen to what he asks. 4 verse 15. What has happened to all your joy? 
Now, Paul is writing to Christians, people who are followers of Jesus, and Christians are supposed to be the most joyful people on the face of the planet because of the hope that we have in Jesus. And yet, Paul has to write to these people who claim to be following Jesus and ask them, what's happened to all your joy? I like how one translation puts it. It says, what then happened to your positive attitude? See, apparently at one point, these Galatian Christians, they had a positive attitude. They were full of joy in Christ. They were optimistic. They were ready to go out and be a positive influence on the world. But over time, something had changed. Something had happened that had robbed them of the joy they were supposed to have in Christ to the point that Paul has to ask them the question, what happened to all your joy? And I have to wonder, if Paul were writing to us today, to you today, would he ask the same question? I don't think any of us want to be known for having a negative spirit. I don't think any of us want to be known for being a spiritual Debbie Downer. And yet, it happens. When I was in Bible college, I was asked to guest speak one Sunday night at a church I'd never been to. In fact, I'd never been to that church since. The only time I've ever been there was that one Sunday night I was asked to be a guest speaker. And I went there to speak, and everybody was really nice and hospitable to me, kind to me, except for one person in the church. And that one person... He was the preacher of the church, the senior minister of the church. And he was just kind of cold to me, short with me, borderline rude. But I just kind of ignored him because everybody else was so nice. I just thought, well, he's having a bad night or he's got something on his mind. I just ignored him. So I got to preach and did what they asked me to do. And then I got finished and I was standing out in the church lobby. And all of a sudden, this guy walks up to me. He looked to be about 10 years older than me. I'm a college student, so he's probably, you know, 30 or so, maybe a little bit older. He came up to me and told me that he had been coming to church for a while, was thinking about uh, being baptized, and after listening to the message that night, he decided he wanted to get baptized in Christ and asked me if I would do it. So I grabbed one of the elders of the church and said, hey, can we baptize somebody here tonight? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And the people who were left there stayed to watch the baptism. It was really a cool scene, and everybody celebrated. We were so excited to see this guy get baptized in Christ. And then after it was all done, I went out to the lobby again, and there was that senior minister of the church who had been kind of rude to me, you know. And I walked up to him. I said, isn't it a great night? And he looked at me, and he said, why didn't that guy ask me to baptize him? And I was thinking, I think I know why. But I didn't say that, you know. I, I didn't say that. And then I thought, well, actually, I felt bad. Because, well, maybe I should have talked to him about it first. You know, he is a senior minister. Maybe I should have talked to one of the elders. Maybe I should have talked to him. Maybe I made a mistake. And then it hit me. I was like, no, it doesn't matter who baptizes somebody. I mean, I'm never offended when somebody else baptizes somebody in the church that I serve because I was in a weekend preaching ministry at that time. So it doesn't matter at all. I mean, that's great whenever somebody's baptized. It doesn't matter who does it because it's not us doing the work in baptism. It's God doing the work. So it doesn't matter who does it. And guys, you don't know how many times I've preached a sermon and somebody has come to me later and said, you know, something you said in that sermon convinced me that I needed to accept Christ. I needed to be baptized. And I asked my family member to do it or I asked another staff member to do it or a friend to do it that is awesome I'm not offended by that because we're all on the same team and what matters is that person is making the step that they need to make in their relationship with Jesus that's awesome and so all that hit me at one time and I just looked at the guys like yeah yeah but it doesn't matter who baptizes somebody really does it the good news is he decided to make the step to take that step that he needed to take and then that preacher looked back at me and I'll never forget what he said he said, well, I hope it sticks. And I remember driving home that night. And those words just replaying in my head over and over. I hope it sticks. I hope it sticks. 
And I thought to myself, what happened to that guy? He's in ministry for a reason. At one time, he had to be on fire for God. At one time, he had to have experienced the joy of Christ. He wouldn't be in ministry if he hadn't at one point. What happened to him? Why did he become, how did he become so negative, so cynical? How do people who start out joyful, positive, grateful, end up so jaded and disillusioned about life? Well, to answer that question today, we're going to look at a guy in the Bible who I'd say was probably the poster boy for cynicism and negativity, at least during one chapter of his life. And his name, it's Solomon. Now, I've preached on Solomon before here in different contexts. And so if you know anything about his life, you know that Solomon was a guy who at one point had it all. He was faithful to God, so God gave him great wisdom. Wisdom like no other man had ever had before. And because Solomon used that wisdom for God to carry out God's will, God blessed him. So Solomon became extremely wealthy. He was powerful, king of Israel. Not only that, he had world-renowned fame and influence. Solomon was granted a long life. I mean, Solomon had it all. Most scholars today believe that Solomon was the wealthiest man who ever lived when you calculate in modern-day inflation rates. He had it all. And when he first became king of Israel, he was optimistic. He was full of joy in his Lord. And listen to what he says when he first becomes king. He's praising God here, 1 Kings 9, verse 56. Praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he has been with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. Then people all over the earth will know that the Lord alone is God and there is no other. Do you hear the optimism? Hear the excitement? Here's the joy. He's thanking and praising God. He is rejoicing in all the promises that God has kept. And he has future hope as well. He has hope that through Israel's presence on the face of the planet, that the entire globe, all peoples, will be blessed because of their presence. I mean, Solomon is excited. He's hopeful. He's joyful. But then you get to the end of Solomon's life. And the book of Ecclesiastes was written when Solomon was an old man. And he's reflecting on his life because Solomon's made a lot of mistakes by this point. And I want you to listen to his tone as he writes in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18. It's a totally different tone. He's reflecting on life, and this is what he says. I also thought about the human condition. How God proves to people that they are like animals. For people and animals share the same fate. There's no difference. Both breathe and both must die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. Really, Solomon? You believe that? How meaningless, he says. Both go to the same place they came from. Uh, they came from dust and they return to dust. For who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the spirit of animals goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for people than to be happy in their work, just be content in your job. That is our lot in life. And no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. See a change in tone? I see a big change. 
I'm not sure if you can get much more cynical or negative about life than that right there. You know, every time I read those words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, this picture always comes to mind. Eeyore. You guys know Eeyore, right? Could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. That's Solomon here. Solomon's Eeyore. And let me just ask, you ever had to deal with an Eeyore in your life? Don't raise your hand. Anybody dealing with an Eeyore right now in your life? Definitely don't point your fingers if you're sitting beside them, okay? Let me ask a more serious question. Would anybody right now consider you to be the Eeyore in their life? Let me clarify, when Solomon says what he says in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, these words of Solomon are not endorsed, are the attitude that Solomon expresses here. It's not endorsed by God. God isn't saying this is an appropriate way to live. In fact, Solomon records how he felt at this moment as a warning to us because Solomon had ignored some of the blind spots in his own life and he had allowed certain things to bring him down and Solomon is warning us and saying, don't take the same path I took. Don't make the same mistakes that I made. Listen to my warning. Heed my caution here. Make sure that you do life differently, that you do life with God because I tried to do life my own way and I got blindsided. And throughout this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will warn us over and over again, don't make the same mistakes I made. Don't end up like me. And yet even though Solomon gave us this warning thousands of years ago, some of us have headed down that same road multiple different times. Some of you may be going down that road right now. And negativity and cynicism, it just continues to creep more and more into your life to the point that it's often controlling you. And let me just say, that is not what God wants for our lives. Because cynics never change the world. They just tell you why the world can't change. Cynics never change the world. They just tell you why the world can't change. A negative attitude among Christians hinders the mission of God. Chronic negativity doesn't adequately represent the heart of Jesus and it turns people off from his church. It turns people off from the good news of Jesus Christ. God doesn't want that for our lives. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, the Bible says, so encourage one another with the hope you have. Build each other up. The Bible commands us to encourage everyone we meet with the hope we have so that we can build people up. That's what we're called to do. But is that always the case? Is that really what the church in our generation is known for? Is that what you're known for? I think most of us start off like that. And when we first accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, hey, we're ready to go out and be a positive influence on this world, be a positive influence in people's lives. But over time, something changes. I was at my parents' house not too long ago and we were looking through old photo albums and I came across my eighth grade yearbook. And in my eighth grade yearbook, there were a couple of pages where they listed some quotes from eighth graders of what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I've got a picture of one of those pages and at the very top of the page, right underneath where it says, never lose your dreams, that's my quote. They put mine at the very top. And look at what it says. My dream is to become the President of the United States of America, Chad Baradas. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened yet. I'm not 35 yet, so I'm not legal to run for President. We'll see what happens after I turn 35. But right now, I haven't become President yet. But you know what? As I read through my different, uh, the different quotes from my classmates, 
I mean, everybody was just so hopeful and everybody was so positive. And some, somebody would write, you know, I want to be a doctor and change lives or I want to be a pilot or I want to be a writer and inspire people or I want to be, be a musician and inspire people. And you saw all these great quotes from these eighth graders. And you know what nobody wrote? Nobody wrote, you know, I just want to work for the weekend. I just want to work to the point where I'm overworked and underappreciated. I just want to live in a cubicle with no windows five days a week and just can't wait for five o'clock to hit. You know, I just want to draw a paycheck. I just want to do enough to get by. I just want to butter up to my boss all the time. No one wrote that. Wouldn't it be odd if they did and then they said, go Panthers. That was my middle school team, you know. <laughs> Nobody did that. You know, when we first become Christians, we have, we have such hopeful dreams that we're going to go out and we're going to change the world and we're going to affect people's lives. We're going to influence them for the sake of Christ and bring joy to people. None of us ever, none of us probably said when we were first baptized or we first accepted Jesus that, hey, you know, as I mature spiritually, I just want to be a grumpy cynic all the time in church. And I just want to complain about everything. And I just want to grumble all the time. And nothing's ever going to make me happy. I want to be the guy that when the preacher sees me walking in the hallway, he wants to run and hide in his office. That's, that's who I want to be. You guys think that doesn't happen. It does, I promise. Hasn't happened here yet, just a matter of time, I'm sure. But it does happen. No one says when they first accept Christ that, hey, uh, I just want to be suspicious of everyone. I don't want to let anybody into my life. I don't want to trust anybody. I just always want to be critical. I'm going to be a glass half empty type of person. Go, Jesus. Nobody says that. But yet it happens. Why? Well, I believe there are certain clues that reveal why we head down this path. And I want to share them with you. And the first thing that I've discovered is this. Most negative people are wounded people. Most negative people are wounded people. Someone or some event has hurt them. And instead of dealing with that hurt and turning it over to God, they continue to let that hurt affect them in a negative way. That was the case for Solomon. Even though Solomon had everything at one point and he started out very positive, Solomon had a lot of untreated wounds that he never dealt with. For one thing, he was raised by David. And yes, David was a great king, and David was known at times for being a man after God's own heart. But David wasn't always a great father. David was at times an absentee dad. He was self-absorbed. He was a womanizer who lacked discipline. He had addictive tendencies. Not only that, the relationship between Solomon's dad, David, and his mom, Bathsheba, it started off kind of rocky. It started off because of an affair. And yes, there's grace for that, but if you don't ever deal with that and talk about that with your kids so they understand what happened, that can continue to affect them, especially when they find out the truth. When Solomon was supposed to become king, he had a brother who backstabbed him and tried to steal the throne away from him. His own brother did that. He had trusted military commanders who turned against him and conspired against him. He married the wrong women, and he married a lot of women, and most of them were the wrong women for him. There were women that led him astray. They were immoral and they distracted him from God. And he had close friends that time and time again rebelled against him. Solomon had been hurt over and over again. And after a while, it started to wear on him. You've probably heard the old saying, hurt people hurt people. And I know from personal experience, that's true. 
Any time that I'm a little short with my kids or my wife or I'm a, I snap at them when I shouldn't, Allison always calls me on it and she'll say, okay, what happened today? Because she knows that's not what I'm typically like. She knows that's not me. So something must be going on that's influencing me. Something must have happened that's, that's weighing on me. And so Allison will say, okay, what happened? We'll talk it out so that I get that out so that it doesn't affect me anymore. And you guys can probably relate to this. When I'm tired, stressed out, distracted, that's when I'm most likely to have a bad attitude. Because most of us, we're kind of like this teapot I have up here with me. You know, we put water in this teapot and put it on the stove and turn the stove on. For a while, nothing really happens. The water starts to boil, but from all outward appearances, nothing changes. But then after some time, as the water continues to boil, the lid will pop off, steam will come out, and you will hear a whistle sound, right? Now, we don't have lids, but we do have hearts. And our hearts can only take so much. For a while, we can let things fester and boil inside of us, and from all outward appearances, we're fine. But eventually, when we let those things build up, and we don't take care of them, and we're not honest with ourselves, and we don't turn them over to God, they implode within us. And eventually, they come out of us. And when they come out of us, they come out in the form of negativity, cynicism, bitterness, anger, resentment, jealousy, and the list goes on and on. Hurt people hurt people. And that's why we have to be aware and honest with ourselves when it comes to our wounds and stresses so that we can turn those things over to God. We can seek God's help, but we can also put godly people in our lives that will help walk with us to overcome these things. Because if we're not careful, we will get to the point where we are saying things and doing things that are not us. But we've allowed those wounds to fester and build up to the point that they implode. As I think my second year in full-time ministry is Christmas time, and my wife, Allison, she was teaching the kids on Sunday mornings in children's church. And so they were going through the Christmas story over the next few weeks. And she, that week she was talking about the wise men, the magi who came to visit Jesus. And so she was telling them what a lot of people have never realized. Though some of you guys, probably most of you know this, but a lot of people don't know this. That the wise men came sometime later after Jesus was born. That they weren't there the same night that the shepherds were there. That most scholars believe that the wise men came uh, a year or two years later. And so our major scenes that we set up as decorations most of them aren't right because they all didn't show up at the same time the wise men came sometime later so Allison's teaching them this and as an illustration she said in our house we never put the wise men with our manger scene every time we set up a manger scene we always put the wise men somewhere else like we'll put the manger scene on the mantle and put the wise men over on the piano or something you know we put them in a different spot and people will come in and say why are the wise men over there you know they think that's odd did Alex move them you know what happened and we'll say no 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 because they came later and then that gives us an opportunity to tell people the story of Jesus' birth. It's a conversation starter. We've done that for years. Well, Allison was telling these kids that, well, you guys know how kids are. A couple of the fifth grade boys, they went right to our church lobby where we had a manger scene set up, and they moved the wise men, and they took the wise men to another part of the lobby, set them on a table. Now, they didn't steal them. They didn't take them. They didn't break them. They just moved them to another part of the lobby. Well, one of the older ladies in our church who was in charge of Christmas setup, <laughs> Christmas decorating, she was very upset when she saw the wise men had been moved, so she put them right back. Well, you know what fifth grade boys do? The next Sunday, they moved them again. We were still like three weeks out from Christmas. For three weeks in a row, these boys kept moving the wise men, and she would move them back and get more mad every time she'd walk in the church and see that these wise men had been moved. 
And so eventually one Sunday, she camped out and she waited <laughs> to see who was doing this. And she caught these fifth grade boys moving the wise men. And she in front of everybody on a Sunday morning at church chewed these little boys out. Let them have it. She raised her voice, screamed at them. And as she's yelling at them, she said, Who gave you permission to move my wise men? Well, they threw my wife under the bus. They said, Well, Allison told us about it in children's church. And so she went straight to Allison. And then she chewed Allison out. Now, Allison came to me crying after that. That's when they, you know, you can beat up on me all you want to. You don't mess with my bride. So I went to this lady, and I went to her in a spirit of love. I acted like Jesus, I promise you. But I went to her. It was hard, but I did. <laughs> I went to her, and I said, okay, what's up? What's going on? I've heard you just chewed out some fifth grade boys and also my wife. You know, what's going on? They moved my wise men. Those are my wise men. No one had permission to move them. And I said, well... Is it really worth getting that upset about? I mean, these are figurines. Is it really worth that getting upset about, first of all? And second of all, isn't it cool that these fifth graders were so excited about the story of Jesus that they listened and they went and moved them? I mean, okay, I'll go to them and I'll tell them not to move anymore. It's fine. I'll tell them not to move them and they won't do it again. But isn't it cool that they were that excited about the story of Jesus that they, that they moved them? I mean, that's neat that they're listening and they didn't know that would offend you. And she looked back at me and she said, they're my wise men. No one has the right to touch him. And I just didn't know what to say to her. Because she was obviously mad. And I just kind of said, well, obviously now's not the time to talk to you about this. And I walked away. Years later, one of her friends came to me and told me that that lady felt really bad about that conversation. Because at the time, she had just found out that her grandson had cancer. And her husband was an invalid and she was taking care of him. And once her situation kind of changed, she realized that she had said a lot of things during that period of her life that wasn't her, she wasn't proud of, wasn't Christ-like. And so this woman never came and apologized to me. She never said anything to me. She was nicer to me later, but she never apologized directly. But her friend came to me and said, she feels really bad about that Sunday when she chewed out those boys and your wife and you. Because she knows that's just not her. You know, I've often thought that a great title for a book on church leadership would be, Who Moved My Wise Men? I think that'd be a great title for a book. Maybe one day I'll do a sermon series during Christmas, Who Moved My Wise Men? That'd be, that'd be a great sermon series. We'll see what happens. But you know, that's what happens when we allow for wounds to go untreated. When we allow for our hurt to build up, eventually it comes out. And we start saying things and doing things that we wouldn't typically do. The second thing that I found about negativity is this. Negativity is often the result of misplaced hope. You see, instead of trusting in God, we place our trust in temporary or superficial things. And people think, well, if I could only get that job, or if only I could get married, or if only I could have kids, then I'd be happy. Or if only I could live in that certain neighborhood, or earn that amount of money, or have that amount of money in my bank account, or if only I could retire, or buy that bike I've always wanted, or camper I've always wanted, or boat that I wanted, then I'd be happy. But the happiness that those things bring, it's fleeting and temporary. It doesn't last. Solomon tried to find happiness through stuff. And listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10. I denied myself no pleasure. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. And sometimes it's not just stuff that we put our hope in. Sometimes we misplace our hope and we put our hope in people, family members, a spouse, maybe our kids. 
Maybe we put our hope in a preacher or a politician or a friend. And then when those people let us down in some way, we lose hope. Some people put hope in other things like religious practices or empty religion, empty traditions. And so they think, hey, as long as I come to church and go through the motion, that'll bring me happiness. Or as long as I continue to worship the same way I've always worshipped, the same style and format I've always worshipped, then that'll make me happy because it used to make me happy, so it should always make me happy. But empty religion, empty religious traditions, they don't bring lasting satisfaction. Not if you're not continuing to grow in your, in your relationship with Jesus. And so when those things let us down, we become bitter and cynical and negative. And that's why we have to make sure that we're placing our hope not in the wrong stuff. Because true lasting hope is only found in a real and sincere relationship with Jesus. And then third, I've also noticed that cynicism starts not because you don't care, but because you do care. Now let me say that again. Make sure you don't miss the point that I'm trying to make. Cynicism starts not because you don't care, but because you do care. As I already said or hinted to, most cynics are former optimists. You start off wanting to make a positive impact on someone's life or make a positive impact on the world around you, but then after a while you receive pushback and you start to hit walls and barriers and you receive undeserved criticism. And after hitting all these walls and getting all this criticism and receiving all this pushback, eventually you just kind of throw your hands up and you think, you know, the more I try, the more it doesn't work out. Solomon got to this point in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18. He says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And so over time, when things don't work out the way you thought they would, you stop trusting people. You stop helping people. You stop believing. You stop dreaming. You generalize and say, Everyone's going to hurt me just like people in my past hurt me. You assume that you know people before you get to know them. You assume you know their motives before you know their hearts. You project the results of past negative experiences onto new experiences. And you close yourself off from others. You close yourself off from new ideas and new perspectives and new ways of doing things all because you think, hey, nothing's worked in the past. And so I have to ask, does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this hit close to home? Could negativity be an obstacle that's in your blind spot right now? That's threatening or on the verge of threatening your relationship with Jesus or the calling He's placed on your life? Because if you think that might be the case, and there have been seasons in my life where that's definitely been the case for me. If you think that might be the case, let me offer you some hope. There's one more thing that I've learned about negativity, and this is probably the most important thing that I'm going to say today. It's this. Negativity is always a choice. It's always a choice. I once heard someone say, cynics aren't born, they're made. And there is an antidote to cynicism. It's having a hope that's anchored in the resurrection of Jesus. See, when you do life with Jesus, the one who defeated death, he constantly breathes new life into you. Let me put it this way. Negativity melts under the relentless hope of the resurrection. See, when our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus, we are reminded that God can change any circumstance and He can overcome any obstacle. That the way things are now are not as they always have to be. 
that Jesus widens our universe and we see things now through the lens of the resurrection so that we know no matter how bad things look, God has power over that circumstance and he has the ability to change it. Jesus' vision for the world becomes our vision and we see past our present circumstances to the hope we have in the risen and living Lord. And when we see the world and see people through the lens of Jesus' resurrection, we don't respond with cynicism or negativity. We respond to life's situations with love. But see, that's a choice that we have to make. Whether or not we're going to do life with him and let him lead, let him continue to breathe life into us. Because the resurrection of Jesus promises us that Jesus can meet your brokenness with love. He can meet your pain with healing. He can meet your despair with hope. He can meet your past with an offer of a fresh start. But again, the choice is yours. And I wonder what would happen if we all made the right choice today. Remember that passage I read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 5.11? So encourage one another with the hope you have. Build each other up. What if that became our life verse every single day? What if all of us made the decision today that we were going to be more intentional about doing just that? that we were going to try to encourage every person we encountered with the hope we have in Christ and build everyone we meet up. What would our church look like if we all made that decision today? What if that was the only verse we lived by? What would our community look like? Let me put it this way. What if everything we said helped people instead of hurt people? The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 4, kind words bring life, but cruel words crush your spirit. Guys, let's live on the front side of that verse. What if everything we did, what if everything we said breathed life into people? What if everything we did and everything we said helped people instead of hurt people? I think everyone would want to be part of a community that did that. Everybody would want to be part of this church. A few years ago, I had the chance to read the book Jesus Prom by John Weiss. And as I read this book, I noticed that one of the themes in it was that it's our responsibility to go out and to invade the sadness of this world with the joy of heaven. That we are participating in a cosmic celebration a cosmic party which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we are to be extending that party that celebration to the world that everyone we meet we should be we should be breathing joy into their lives we should be invading the sadness of earth with the joy of heaven and after reading that in the book Jesus prom I finished it one afternoon I went to Walmart and as I was walking through those automatic doors in Walmart something hit me what if I actually live like that and I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk into Walmart today, and I'm going to walk in with a goal that I want to extend the joy of heaven. I want to extend the party that is the resurrection of Jesus. And you know what happened? I saw everyone differently. I saw the people that I encountered in the aisles through a different lens. The cashier, the guy that handed me a cart, I saw everyone through a different lens. I saw everyone through the lens of resurrection. And so I smiled a lot more. I had more conversations. I didn't have the attitude that I just want to get in and get out. 
No, I took advantage of every opportunity to show people kindness and love. And I left Walmart, and it took me a lot longer to get in and out of Walmart than it typically does, but I left Walmart feeling so fulfilled because I felt as if I had just extended the celebration that is the resurrection of Jesus with those around me. That I had just allowed for the joy of heaven to invade the sadness of people's lives through my actions, through my deeds, through my words. And what if we all, here at First Church, decided to do just that? That everywhere we went, we wanted to do things to help people instead of hurt people. What if we went out and did that? I think if we did, if we decided to live like that, we would surprise the world with the joy and love of heaven. Let's go do that. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the chance we've had to come together as your people, Father, to open up your word. And there are so many obstacles in life that can blindside us if we're not careful. And Father, we want to be aware of those things. We don't want Satan to get the best of us. We are not unaware of his schemes. And so, Father, today as we've talked about negativity and cynicism, Father, we pray that we don't let those things develop in our lives in such a way that they overcome us and control us. Father, may we be a people who go out and extend the joy of heaven. May we be a people who go out and invade the sadness of people's lives with the love of your Son. We thank you so much for Jesus. And through his name I pray, amen.